Amen. Thank you, Brandon. So good morning. Good to see you this morning. If we've not met, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. This summer, we were talking about what it means to live from the inside out. That's the, the phrase that we've used as a title of the sermon series. And we've said there are really two ways that you can live your life. You can live your life feeling the weight of external pressures and expectations trying to squeeze you into a certain mold, which I think we're all familiar with, or you can live your life feeling the weight of your inner life and what God's doing there by his power, trying to push its way out uh, like a butterfly emerging from a cocoon. Uh, And so for a Christian who is a person who has been given the spirit by the resurrected Christ, there is such a work that God is doing in you that that you should feel that sense of this thing trying to get from inside of you out. Uh, In physics, when two masses, when two bodies, you know, collide, uh, we're told that the one with the lesser momentum, which is defined as mass times velocity, and I hope you're impressed that I boned up on my physics this week, the one with the lesser momentum gives way to the greater. Now, we know this. What happens to a love bug if it hits your windshield when you're going 70 miles an hour on I-4? But what happens to your car if you hit a semi-trailer head-on going 70 miles an hour on I-4? So we see these principles at work. Very different experiences, okay? And so it's normal for our internal lives to be giving way to our circumstances because the external things that we encounter often have greater momentum emotionally. They have greater mass and greater velocity as they kind of crash into our lives. So we go through a storm of some kind, and what happens is often as we get stormy on the inside, like the disciples of Jesus on the boat, which we looked at a number of weeks ago. But when we talk about living from the inside out, we mean... Uh, we mean to describe the kind of person that has an, such a powerful, uh, overwhelming inner life, so large, so powerful work God is doing there, uh, that when, when what's going on inside crashes into the stuff on the outside, the outside gives way. And, and it's the little things, okay? Don't get, don't get overwhelmed by that. It's just the little things. Uh, my grandmother, who's here this morning, I picked her up at the place where she stays in in. Um, in Lakeland, and, uh, you know, she was just telling me just it can become a really dull and, and dreary and, um, and sad place, a lot of loneliness, the people that are there, and I was so grateful that there's a man who comes to do a church service there on Sunday mornings, and he, uh, we, we saw him, and he just talked to us as I picked her up and brought her this morning, and he just exuded such joy and just an overwhelming, oh man, isn't it a great day? And, and that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, that, that it is possible for you to be a person of such joy that when you go into a very sad place, your joy overwhelms the sadness of that place. I did a funeral yesterday for a family member. And, you know, often for Christians, we're told grieve but not without hope. And it's a real struggle for a lot of people because the grief can become overwhelming, particularly when it's a very sad set of circumstances. And so... Uh, As a pastor, I'm very aware that when I go into situations like that, my job, my job is to be so buoyed with hope myself that my hope, that they can grab a hold of my hope as kind of a lifeline out of their own sadness. That's my job. 
Or if you, I mean, it's the little things, right? It's these little things, but these are powerful moments in our lives. Like, like when my kids uh, go through a really hard time, because I love them, it's, it's almost impossible for me to watch my children go through some kind of suffering and not just uh, take on their panic and become panicked with them in those moments. What they need, they need for me to remain composed, and they need for my faith to be able to conquer their fear. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about. And so if you're going to be successful, which is what this text in Second Peter that we've read a number of times this summer is about, it says if you have, if you're this certain kind of person, you'll be successful and you'll be effective and, and things, you know, you'll, you'll be seeing fruit being born in your life and everything you do. But if you're going to be like that, if you're going to make a difference, you've got to have the right stuff on the inside. It's these qualities here in Second Peter one, which we're going to read in just a minute again. And if you have them, it says, and if, you're, if they're increasing in you, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. It's an astounding promise, really. So if your faith is in Jesus, Peter says that there is divine power there, verse 4. You'll see it in just a minute. Divine power at work in you, not to make everything go the way you want it to, but to make you into the kind of person who can remain steady no matter how things are going. And that's way better. In fact, the promise is that the power at work in you, changing you, will begin to make its way out and begin to change everybody and everything else around you. That's, that's what we mean from the inside out. And so this morning, we come to this idea of steadfastness, steadfastness. So as we read these passages together, look for this word. It's translated endurance also, and you'll just see the scriptures emphasis on how important this is in our life. So steadfastness. So let's read again from 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 8. We're going to skip around as we've been doing all, all summer to James chapter 1 and then again in James 5. The whole book of James is really about this steadfastness, this endurance, and then we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 12 as well. So I'll just read as we go along. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, or you can grab a Bible, the Pew Bible, all the page numbers are there, and you can follow along in a Bible if you'd like to as we read together. It's quite a bit, but this is good stuff. So let's read, beginning in 2 Peter 1, 3-8 again. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. We've gotten that far, but here's today. And self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And so this summer, we're just taking those one by one. Because, Peter writes, for if these qualities are yours, and if they're increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then from James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, same word, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. 
Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Same word. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And then from Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside also every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, it's the same word, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is God's word. So this morning we've come to this quality of steadfastness. It's a particularly important quality because without it, you will never get any of the others. C.S. Lewis made this point. He said that courage, which is another name for patience or endurance or steadfastness, he said courage is not just another virtue. It's actually the form of all the virtues at the breaking point. He meant by that that the only way, there's only one way, there's only one way to become the kind of person Peter is describing, and that is that you have to be able to endure hard things and keep going, because if you give up when it gets hard, you'll never get any of the other virtues, because they only are developed through the habit and the discipline and the ability to do that very thing. So if you give up when it gets hard, you'll never get faith or self-control or, or any of the rest of these things. James says it much better, I think. If you look at the James 1 paragraph there, the second one down from the top of the page on your insert, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect. Well, what is steadfastness full effect? It is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the full effect of steadfastness is the development of all of the other virtues in your life. That perfect there doesn't mean perfect like without sin and you never do anything wrong. It means that you become a, a fully, whole, mature, godly person. Now what we've been doing this summer is we've been looking, this is really a, a sermon on this one word there in verse 6, uh, but we're looking at it from the scope of, of the entire Bible. So we've been taking... Second Peter one, and then bouncing to another, some other places, and and um, and you know, trying to bring all of this together. Now, the text we've chosen to bounce to this morning is James chapter five, particularly, which is a meditation. This is this is where this gets tricky. Okay, we're bouncing from Second Peter one to James five, but James five bounces to the book of Job. And so, really, we're talking about James five, which talks about the book of Job, because James says there, if you see there. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So of all of the biblical characters, the story of Job, which is this beautiful story in the Old Testament scriptures, it illustrates and exemplifies what, what the Bible means by this word steadfastness. So we want to learn the lessons that Job teaches. Now we're going to get there by way of James chapter 5. But here's what we're, we're after this morning. We want to talk about this character, this, this quality here steadfastness. And we want to say, we want to say three things about it. We want to, we want to tell you why you need it. We also want to tell you what it is, we want to define it, and then we want to lastly make sure to tell you how you can get it. And we're going to do that by kind of thinking about Job, you know, in kind of a broader sense, 
But there are three main characters in the book of Job. There's lots of characters, but three main characters in the book of Job. And those characters are Satan and Job and God. And we're going to look at each of those characters because when we look at Satan, we really see why we need this, this quality of steadfastness. When we look at Job, Job is the example of what it really is. But ultimately, the only way to get it is to look to God and to know his character in all that he does in our lives. Okay? So first... Why we need steadfastness. And the answer is because we live in a fallen world, and that means suffering. Christianity is not an escape from suffering. It's the occasion for more suffering. Because Christians deep dive into the fallenness of the world in obedience to Christ. We run toward, not away from, the hard things. So John Piper at a chapel service at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando in 1997, in my first two weeks on campus, was there, and I didn't know who he was. I'd never heard of him before. He was this geeky guy. I almost left because I thought, well, who in the world is that guy? And uh, he, in that chapel service, he made a statement. He said, the world, the world moves away from need towards comfort. But Christians move away from comfort and towards need. And that sentence changed my life. Almost instantaneously. Moving away from comfort towards need. That's what we do in obedience to Jesus because it's exactly what God has done in Jesus. But it means, it means a harder life. It means more suffering. And so James writes, count it all joy, brothers, when, not if, when. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And sometimes we meet trials because they're coming at us but sometimes we meet trials because we've chosen to go right at them. And then later in chapter 5, he uses the prophets as an example. He says the ministry of these men and women pulled them, look James 5.10, pulled them into a life of suffering and patience in obedience to God. So suffering, that, that, that is life. Even more so the Christian life. Everybody gets suffering. Everybody in the room, everybody in the world, there's no escape in a fallen world from that. But what is uniquely Christian is the response. He says of these prophets and their legacy to us is suffering and patience. So the response to this suffering is patience. Christians are outfitted with unique resources to flourish in suffering. And that's way better than no suffering at all. And you, you may just have to believe me when I say that, but it's true. Now the very first lesson of the book of Job is that evil is on the loose in the world. And it goes something like this. A man named Job was a righteous man. He loved God with everything and loved others. And he had many sons. He was wealthy. Life was pretty good for Job. And then it wasn't. He suffered incredible, almost unimaginable loss. First his livelihood, then his family, then his health. I mean, he lost everything, this man, in this story in the Old Testament. He lost everything. And one of the things we're to learn is that it happens to all of us that way. Maybe not to the degree that it happened to this man, but every person in the room, every one of us, we're either in the middle of some kind of hard thing, some kind of suffering, or we will soon be because the world is enemy-occupied territory. And after that biographical sketch at the beginning of, of Job, the very next scene is the throne room of heaven. This is in Job, Job chapters 1 and 2. And there in heaven, we're introduced to a character named Satan, and his name means accuser, and that is what he has come before God to do. He, his accusations, he comes to God and he accuses this man, Job, who's got it so well, and his accusations lead, God to, lead to God allowing him to inflict all kinds of, um, you know, bad things upon Job. 
all that I've already described. And according to the Bible, then, in this scene, evil is personal. It's given a name. It, it says there in Job 1-7 that Satan, and this is a terrifying phrase, but it says that Satan came into the throne room of God after going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it to see who he could bring accusation against before the Lord. Now, this is no devil-made-me-do-it theology, however. That can easily become an excuse for not taking responsibility for our lives and for the pain that we experience and the pain that we cause. But the larger story of the Bible tells us that evil, though it is on loose in the world, that evil took root on our watch. That we were made as the watchmen of God's creation. And in order for evil to take root in the world, it had to first take root in us. And that's exactly what happened. So we are not victims. That's the teaching of the Bible. And that explains why the world is the way that it is and why our experience of the world is the way it is. That on the very best days, we know that a very, very bad day could be just around the corner. Because we've just experienced it that way. Now, that's why we need steadfastness. Because we have no choice but to live in a world like that. And if you're a Christian, you're going to live more fully into that experience because of your obedience to Jesus. who's going to drag you into all kinds of things you'd rather not be drug into. We deep dive into the fallenness of the world as believers. So secondly then, well, what is steadfastness then? What is it? Because if we know we need it, we got to know what it is. And so Job is the example here. And that's what James says. We'll get to him in just a minute. But first, the text in James 5, because it gives us a clear definition and an illustration of what, of what the Bible means by this word. And so first, the word itself. Uh, in the Greek, it is a compound word. Uh, and, and the two words that, that go together, the root means to remain or to hold. In other words, a person who stays put, a person who's steadfast is immovable, 1 Corinthians 15. They, they stay put no matter what. But then it's attached, there's a prefix attached to it, and the prefix is hypo, as in hypothermia. And hypothermia means your, your body temperature is below its normal. And so you put the two together. Hypo means below or under. You put the two words, the two kind of, pieces of that word together and you and it, you get a word that literally means to stay under now the idea here is that the things that are happening in our lives are more than just coincidence our national motto at least it was at one time i think it still is one nation what under god one nation under god because 300 years ago we knew 250 years ago we knew that we live life under god and so even the hard things, like what Job had to face, are from God. And we have a choice in our life when we go through stuff like this. Whether we will embrace what God is doing, because it often gets hard. Or, you know, even when we don't understand. Whether we'll embrace it and stay under it and allow, you know, allow it to take place in our life. Or whether we'll put all of our energy and resources into trying to get out from underneath God. To start calling the shots for ourselves. Steadfastness means you stay put. You receive whatever comes joyfully, as James says. You don't try to get out of whatever God seems intent to have you in. It's really no use doing that anyway. You don't stand a chance against him. You let God do the work that he intends to do in your life, even though it's hard, even though it hurts, even though it's painful because you know ultimately it's good. Now, James expands this idea in the verses that follow in James chapter 5, that's the third paragraph down on your, on your little um, insert there. He says, be patient. You see that? Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then verse 8, 
He repeats himself, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now, three times here, James says, be patient, or he refers to this word patient. And that word is a synonym for our word this morning. In some translations, it, it would be translated long-suffering because literally that is what the word means. It means it's a compound word too, which means to suffer long, to suffer and to not lose heart, but to remain positive and hopeful and full of faith. And, and so this is what we're called to do. James, James says there's only one way to live in this world. You have to be able to endure patiently. Now, the opposite of patience is what he goes on to describe in the very next verse, in verse 9. So he says, verse 8, be patient, establish your hearts. Verse 9, do not grumble. And we dealt with this for three weeks earlier this year, so I won't rehash too much. I won't grumble about your grumbling, as I was accused of doing back in those days. But I want to say again, it's surprising what a big sin grumbling is in the Bible. C.S. Lewis has a paragraph that begins with the sentence, hell begins with a grumbling mood. Grumbling is an act of rebellion, and we usually resort to grumbling when it's the only move we have left, right? You know what I mean by that? I mean, we may, we may have no choice but to obey, but we don't have to like it. And the grumble, the grumble is the way we express our dislike. Even, right, even as I, I could, I, I would do the things my parents told me to do, but I could grumble to make sure they knew I didn't, I wasn't really on board with it. The problem is the grumble makes it worse. The truth is that even in the worst times, God is doing something wonderful, and a grumbling mood robs you of the ability to see it. So the providence of God is always working to turn bitter things in life sweet. But the grumble works in reverse. It makes even the sweet stuff bitter. But notice, too, James says, verse 9, do not grumble against one another. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember this from Exodus? People are mad. They're mad about what God is doing to them, but they grumble and they complain against Moses, it says, as if he's to blame, which is strange because he's just obeying the commands of the Lord too. So you know you're in a bad way. Listen, you know you're in a really bad way when you're mad at people for the stuff that God is doing in your life. We need to learn to redirect our complaints to the right department. There's biblical precedent for doing that, by the way. There are, there are a third of the Psalms does that. Lord, I hate, I hate life. And I hate you for giving me this life. God can handle that stuff. What's wrong is to grumble against one another when our issue really is with him. Now, how do we resist the temptation to grumble and stay, pa and stay, and stay patient? Well, it's the stuff that's sandwiched in between those two things. You see there in verses 8 and, uh, and then again in verse 9. It's, it's all this stuff. James says, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so that, that we've been talked about this a lot, that sense of establish your hearts. What James means by there is when you're going through a hard time and you can feel your heart start to sour, you've got to grab a hold of your heart and say, no, 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 we're not going there. You got to do what the psalmist did and say, why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. You don't listen to your heart. You start to talk to your heart with the truth that you know, and you, and you just flood it with all that you know to be true of God until your heart bends and breaks against the force of your theology. That's what it means to establish your heart. And you remind yourself of the reality of judgment. Judgment is a great cure for a grumbling spirit. 
He says, don't remember, you know, and, and everywhere in the Bible, almost, almost every time the Bible talks about grumbling, it's in the context of judgment. It's fascinating. The Bible, said, the Bible warns very clearly, be careful of this sin because this is one of the things God's really going to go after on the judgment day. Isn't that fascinating? And I wonder why even James connects grumbling with judgment. I think it's because it's what the grumbling itself is. He's saying, don't take the place of God. You'll only make it worse. So that's the illustration. I mean, that's the definition. But there's also an illustration that helps us understand what steadfastness is. Although, I don't know, today it may not be as powerful as it would have been in times past. But he says, uh, if you look up at verse 7, it's the illustration of the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain. So patience comes up again here. But I think this is helpful because, you know, a farmer plows and plants the seed. But once he's done with the planting and the plowing, what's left to do? All he can do is wait. He's done his work. And then there's nothing else that he can do. The rains have to come. God has to come. And so many times in our lives we're faced with those kinds of circumstances. And patience Steadfastness is the ability to stay in that place of waiting until God shows up. Because we learn all over the scriptures, think of Abraham, for example, that when we decide we're tired of waiting and we take things into our own hands, all we do is make a big, big, big mess of stuff. Now, back to Job for just a minute as we continue on. Job was steadfast. He didn't grumble which is really amazing when you think about it because he got a raw deal. It got so bad that his wife came to him and eventually said, listen, would you just curse God and die? But he wouldn't. Listen to this. Chapter 1 ends. After all the suffering he's endured with this, listen to this verse. Verse 22. In all of this, Job did not sin and charge God with wrong. That's what the grumble does, by the way. It says to God, you've got this wrong, which is why it's such a big sin. But chapter 1 ends with Job. But it's, a st- it's just, I can't get it. It's amazing. Chapter 1 ends with Job worshiping, singing the Matt Redmond song, right? He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But notice he didn't engage either. He didn't shut down emotionally, and that is perhaps the most amazing part of the story to me. He continued to seek God. He continued to walk with God against all of the bad advice of his friends. So patience, steadfastness isn't, Passive. It doesn't just make demands of God because that doesn't do. The farmer waits, but that waiting is active. He still gets up on before dawn and frets over the weather reports and does all he can to keep the fields ready for the rains. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. This man is our example in all that he endured and, and went on with the Lord. But then lastly, uh, and this is the bulk of what we want to look at this morning, then how, if we need steadfastness because evil is on the loose, it's taken root in us even before it took root in the world, and we see in Job the kind of people that God intends for us to be, he's the model of this steadfastness for us, then we need to ask how can we get it, and the answer is that you have to know the why behind all of the hard things that happen in life. Uh, there, the word, uh, that's uh, verse 11, if you look there with me again, James 5. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. And that word, purpose, there is uh, the Greek word telos, and it means the finish line. 
It means the why, the purpose behind all that's happening. So there is a purpose. Every hard thing has a purpose, and you have to know why. You have to know the why. That's important. And here's the hint, that when you know the why, the big why, behind everything God does, you won't need to know why when it happens. If you know the big why, then you won't have to know why as you're going along with him. Now, the book of Job is not about Job. It's misnamed. It's about God. And God is the third character in the story we want to look at, but he's the main character, and ultimately he, he is the why. So let me say this here. Only Christianity can give you a good why for the suffering we all have to walk through in life. Secularism can't. Our, our world is becoming increasingly secular, and secularism says there is no why. This material world, it's all there is. There's no God, and therefore there is no reason for all of the bad things that happen in the world. Some people get hurt, some people don't, some people get lucky. The best people suffer the most, the worst people get off easy. There's no rhyme or reason, there's no justice, it's pure chance, that's all, that's all we got. There's no power in that at all, I hope you see. So secularism says there's no why, and it really strips us. We, that's, why, that's why we're so flimsy, to be honest. That's why our culture is producing wimpy people. Is because it's taken away the ability to endure hard things and, and come out on the other side with some kind of hope and, and knowledge of where we're going. But the other thing that many of us are kind of trying to detox and come out of, moralism, which, which seems to be kind of the opposite you know, ideology of secularism, moralism can't give you a good wife for suffering either because what moralism says is moralism will come and say, well, there's an easy answer. There's an easy answer to all of these hard things. Bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. And so, if you're suffering, then it's one of two options. There's only two possible reasons why that could be happening in your life. Well, either you've screwed up, and it's bad in your life because you've been bad, and so you better figure that out. And that, by the way, that's Job's friends, right? If you know the story, they come along, and they ba basically the whole book is written to refute this idea. But, but his friends come along and say, Job, you, you need to be honest about what's really, you're a bad guy, or else this wouldn't be happening to you. So, two options, either you screwed up, or the worst one is, if, it, if, it, if you didn't screw up, then it must mean God screwed up. You've been good, and so you deserve good, because that's in a moralistic you know, worldview, that's the way this works. You've been good, but God has given you bad, and therefore, that's not right. You get angry. So you either live angry with yourself, or angry with him. But Christianity, contra both secularism and moralism, says that there is an answer but it's not an easy answer. And Job, the book of Job is not an easy book. It's a very complex book. It's a very difficult book to work your way through. And I don't even know that I understand it all, to be honest. But Christianity says there is an answer. You just have to work for it. It's not easy. You've got to work for it. And so the first part of the answer, uh, is, which is what I'm trying to do for you now, is to kind of give an answer, although I have like five minutes to do that, and that's completely unsatisfactory. But the first part, because I just said it's a complex answer, right? So there's no way of doing that. But the first part of the answer is, is, uh, is that Job's obedience is stunning, uh, but there's still something incomplete about it. The reader is told about the conversation between God and Satan at the beginning and about Job, but Job doesn't know that happened, and that's the clue to understanding the, the theology of the book. Satan accuses Job of being on the take. He says to God, Job, Job doesn't really love you, because God says, if you see my servant Job, and Satan's like, yeah, I'm not super impressed with that guy. You know, I, I don't think he really loves you. He's, he's using you. He, he, look at his life. You've get, he's got 
sons and he's rich and you've made everything great for him. Of course he serves you. But he only serves you because you've filled his life with so many good things. Take those things away and I guarantee he'll quit on you. He accused Job of having a mercenary love for God. And a mercenary, of course, is a bought soldier. They serve the king not out of love or loyalty, but for the money. And it's, we have to admit that we often love God's gifts more than God himself. It's the problem with moralism, by the way. If you do good to get good, then you're in it just for the payout. And you'll obey as long as it pays off. But when it doesn't, you're out. So suffering is God's surgical instrument to cut away the cancerous tumors that are all over our obedience. Listen to Tim Keller. He says, the only way to be sure you're serving God for he himself alone rather than what you're getting out of it is that you've got to be in a condition where serving God gives you nothing. Where you're getting nothing out of serving God. In fact, you're getting the opposite. And if you keep serving him when you're getting the opposite, then you know you're serving him for him. Satan's cynical about love, see? But God wants free lovers and servants. And here's why you should want it too. Because if, listen, if you and I, if we could get to the place in our lives where God was the one thing, the only thing that I said, you know what, I, he's the only thing that I can't live without. If he and not his gifts truly became the ultimate source of my security and happiness and comfort, then I would become immovable. Suffering wouldn't shake me at all like it does now because what's happening in suffering is suffering is forcing you to go without the things that provide a false sense of security and hope, but you get more of God. And the reason suffering is so scary is because it threatens to take away the things that we love too much. But what if your true love could never be taken away? What then? Well, suffering would actually drive you deeper into the source of your greater, greatest joy and comfort. Can I say that again? Suffering would drive you deeper into your greatest source of joy and comfort. It would mean more peace, more freedom, more joy. Can you imagine? See, if you give up when it starts going bad, well, it shows what was motivating you in the first place. But if you love God no matter what, then good or bad, it won't make any difference. The telos of suffering is steadfastness. That's what we're told. And you, you don't get steadfastness without going through the suffering. So the telos, the telos of suffering is steadfastness, but the telos of steadfastness is a better, purer kind of obedience. And I just want to say to you, it's worth it. But how do you get it? I've still not answered that question, right? How do, how do you get it then? Well, you have to know that God is not the kind of God that secularism nor moralism claims he is. Secularism says he's probably not there to begin with. But if he is, he doesn't really care about anything going on down here. Well, that's not right. Look at what James says. James 5, 8, and 9. He says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's standing at the door. The Lord is, the Lord is in our midst. He is, he's so concerned with what is happening in this world that he's come himself in the person of Jesus to weep with us and to bear the curse of our sin. Moralism says to get good things from God, you have to be good because he's petty and he's stingy, but that's not right either. Nothing could be farther from the truth. And this is the ultimate lesson of the book of Job, I think, that you don't have to know God's reasons, but you do have to know his character. And you see, the book of Job is not written to answer the question why. The book of Job is to show you the one who is behind all of the unknown whys. 
You may not know his reasons, but you do have to know his character. Listen to Tim Keller again. He says, if you have a God who's big enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he's not stopping your suffering, <laughs> then at the same moment, you have a God big enough and powerful enough, powerful enough to have reasons for why he allows it that you can't possibly conceive of. We have a knowing problem. Just because I can't see why that makes sense, whatever it is I'm going through, doesn't mean there isn't one. And Job did not learn God's reasons. Think about this. He did not learn God's reasons. God never met the demands that Job made. Job didn't learn his reasons, but he did learn about God's character. And that's enough. Now, James could not be more direct. Again, verse 11, he says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose, that word, the telos of the Lord. In other words, this is the why. Do you, are you wondering why? God does what he does. Here's the why behind everything God does. Every single thing he does. Here's what James says. James 5.11. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. You ready? How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What is God's purpose? Mercy. What is the why? What is the motivation of God's heart in all that he does? It's his compassion for those he loves. Every time. Jeremiah Burroughs is, is kind of a famous Puritan preacher. He was preaching, his ministry was during uh, probably the darkest time in, in uh, Europe's history, kind of in the, in the Black Plague, uh, you know, in that time. And uh, he decided he would preach a series of sermons about contentment. <laughs> and that alone is why you should probably read the book. Um, because that's just a tremendous amount of courage. Uh, but here's what he said to these people who were every day burying people they loved because as the plague was sweeping through Europe, he said, the truth is that the afflictions of God's people come from the same eternal love that Jesus Christ came from. All God's strokes are strokes of love and mercy. All God's ways are mercy and truth and grace gives a man an eye, a piercing eye, to pierce into the counsel of God, those eternal counsels of God for good to him, so that even in his afflictions he can see the love of God for him. So God's why with Job was mercy. His why in whatever you're going through is mercy too. His why in everything is mercy. So you don't have to know why. You see, you can be sure that there's a good reason for whatever you're going through. But how, how can you be sure I mean, how can we be sure? Well, centuries later, Satan assaulted another innocent sufferer who was stripped naked and who cried out as Job did. Why? And he got no answer either. It was Jesus Christ, the true and better Job. Job felt abandoned by God because of his sins, according to his friends. But Jesus was truly abandoned by God because of our sins. God said to Jesus, if you obey me, I will crush you. I'll turn my back on you and he did. He got nothing out of it. He got the opposite of what he deserved. Jesus obeyed God and got him nothing. He obeyed God out of perfect love for the Father, unlike Job, unlike you and me, unlike anyone else who's ever lived. And that proves that Satan is a liar. Jesus suffered not so that we would not suffer, but so that, we, but so that when we do suffer, we can be completely sure in the midst of our suffering that all of our crosses are truly mercies. Isn't that good news? 
That helps me so much. Now, let me just finish with this. I, I concluded, I included uh, the Hebrews 12 passage here just because I wanted to say this a little bit at the end. And, and because the word is there as well, you'll see that uh, the word is used twice here, the same word, steadfastness, but it's translated endurance here. So he says, Hebrews 12, 1, run the race with endurance, the race set before us. Run it with endurance. And so just, just think, life is a marathon, not a sprint. It doesn't matter how fast you go. It matters that you finish. So pace yourself. There's lots of just little things you could really kind of take out of that, right? Run, and, and what matters is that you get to the end. But, but here's what, what uh, the writer of Hebrews says. He says, you become steadfast. So he's saying, we need to run with endurance. We need this, this steadfastness to be able to get through life. But the way you get it, the way you get steadfastness, which we're called to in verse 1, is to do verse 2. And in verse 2, he says, if you want to become steadfast, you have to look to Jesus who is also steadfast. You see that? See what he says? He says, Jesus endured the cross. That's that same word there again. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that's set before him. And that's you, by the way. You are his great joy that made the cross such a small thing that he could endure all the pain and the torment of it. And when you see him enduring in love for you, then you will find that you have the resources that you need to endure in love for him. When you know that you are the great treasure of his heart, so much so that the cross... Began a little, became a little thing in comparison, then he will become the great treasure of your, house, your heart, and every cross you bear will also seem small compared to the love that you have for him. His steadfastness can make you steadfast, but you have to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, standing at the right hand of the throne of God, the giver of the spirit, which is divine power on the inside to meet any obstacle and keep going until steadfastness has its full effect. Amen. Let's pray. Will you pray with me? So, Father, we so desperately need that. And so we would ask that you would come and go to work on our stubborn hearts. Oh, ye of little faith, I, I can just hear reverberating in my, in my soul. I am of such little faith that I quit in the middle of what you're doing before the good can come from what you're doing. And I pray that would not be the case for us, but that we would become a people so sure and confident of your love for us in Christ, so buoyed by the hope that everything that you do for us is mercy and compassion, that we would possess the resources that we need to do a deep dive into the to fallenness and the brokenness of this world with one another, to go to those places of brokenness that just drive us crazy in one another, but to go to the places of brokenness and suffering and pain in our world, knowing that it means a cross. It means a cross. But there's no other way to live as a follower of yours. Jesus, you said, take up your cross and follow me. And so... need the courage to do that and that only comes from your spirit so Holy Spirit would you come in these moments and begin to change us but we know how that happens we're told if we want to endure we need to look to Jesus who endured and so turn our gaze towards you in these last moments we have to be together may this be a time of worship where we stop thinking about ourselves and think about you become amazed yet again by your wonderful love and mercy to us May this song be the outflow of that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Martin Luther said that when, uh, when you're really caught in unbelief, what's happening to your heart is all of the mercies of God are starting to seem like a small thing and all of the crosses seem huge. And he said, but what a gracious heart does, a heart that really has got a hold of the truth of God's character that's revealed to us in the gospel, is he says, the magnitude of God's heart is such that all of the crosses become a really small thing and all of the mercies are just overwhelming. And that really is the key to going uh, with these words echoing in your soul uh, into whatever, I, again, whatever, I don't want to make light of the hard things, but whatever hard thing, uh, who God is sufficient to get you through that and the promises that he makes to you. So receive these words uh, and go in obedience uh, to the one who goes with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.